millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello. Welcome to another episode of Ancient Office Hours by the Ozymandias Project. Trireme Transit is now boarding for all new and returning passengers. Now departing... Present ponderings. Next stop is Ancient Office Hours at a library lost in the sands of time. Hey everyone, and welcome to episode 81 of Ancient Office Hours. This week I spoke with Dr. Daniel Leone, professor of classics at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. His main area of research is Greek and Roman historical narrative, particularly as it reflects intercultural relations and the political uses of the past. Additional interests include Hellenistic history, Roman Egypt, epigraphy, papyrology, and medieval Greek scholarship. In this episode, we discussed how he got into Greek via Jewish tragedies, his research on the life and rule of Philip III of Macedon, his work on the origins of nationalist movements using history as a throughline, and how to balance teaching general classes versus special topics courses. I hope you enjoy this episode, and if you like what you hear, please give us a five-star rating and review us on Apple or Spotify. You can also subscribe to our Patreon, as this will allow us to reach more people and make more exciting ancient world content. Enjoy! Thank you so much for joining me this afternoon. So I hope to get us started with a really, hopefully, easy question for you, which is just, how old were you, or when did you discover your love for the ancient world? Gosh, for love, I think we were talking about probably college. My first experience with studying classics was in high school. I took a year of ancient Greek. I guess I had some vague idea that I could maybe learn to read the New Testament in Greek, but all the other kids in the class had had Latin and I hadn't, so I did quite poorly. But I liked the language, so I tried again in college and I did much better the second time. And the more I studied the language and became able to read the literature, the more I started to fall in love with uh, ancient Greek culture and history. Nice. And there's so much under the umbrella, right, of Greek history and culture. So when you were finally able to go into it and and start studying more, how did you go about finding your one passion? Because there's there's so many like shiny objects, right, shiny paths you could take. So how did you figure out, okay, I want to study this? Mm -hmm. Great question. Um, Honestly, it was kind of a one thing leads to another type of story. Uh, I went to a small college and after the first couple of years of Greek, there weren't really very many other Greek students. So just whatever the faculty was able to offer as an independent study, that's what I read. Uh, And that meant stuff like tragedy, uh, which was one of my first loves. Weirdly, Josephus's Jewish Antiquities, which I think is not usually one of the first things people read that was on my reading list and i didn't really know what to make of it at first but i've come back to it and things like it repeatedly throughout my career um because what i really ended up liking is uh observing how different people tell the same story in different ways and so you know i think that's part of what was going on with the tragedies is i had read some homer And I'm hearing these Homeric stories retold through a tragic lens uh, for completely different reasons at a different time in history. And once I got into graduate school, and I hadn't really read a ton of history up until that point, and started studying history in graduate school, that's when things really started to click for me. I I like the relationship between events and stories uh, and figuring out how those stories came to be and what that tells us about the people who write and read such stories. That's uh, that's where things really started to solidify for me. 
Well, it makes sense then why you kind of had this pick up this interest in historical narrative. Now, for people who may not be super familiar with studying the historical narrative of a a culture really means in, in this sort of context. Yeah, can you tell us a little bit about how that came about and how you envisioned being able to study this this narrative of ancient Greece and into Rome and stuff? Uh, well, it started with Herodotus. And I imagine many of your listeners are familiar with Herodotus. Most people like Herodotus, I think. Once you start following his weird little stories, uh, they're just full of interesting passageways and all kinds of stuff that you weren't expecting to read about that turns out to be important later. Um, And what really caught my attention was the way Herodotus talks about non-Greek people. And something about that really sparked an interest in my mind to, to figure out what it was that fascinated him so much about people who grew up in a different environment than he did. And from that point on, after that first encounter with Herodotus, that that really was kind of the driving question for me is, how do different people understand each other? And when I eventually started working towards a dissertation topic, this arose through stories of conflict. So I had studied a little bit about Alexander the Great's invasion of Persia uh, and the different Greek stories that told about those events in different ways for different reasons, different times and all of that. And trying to sift through that well-known story and finding all the the gaps and the dead ends and everything in there and the omissions, that's what really led me to trying to figure out, okay, like let's look at just one of those stories and see what its internal logic is telling us um, and try to leave to the side whether that story is correct or not and just uh, try to understand what that author is trying to do. And that's how I ended up working on Arian, whose history of Alexander is usually thought of as like the most reliable of the ancient stories of Alexander. So I guess that's that's how I got started. And again, things just kind of led on from there. And I, I've gotten interested in famous figures from antiquity and how people in the modern world use them for their own purposes as well. That's really cool. And I saw somewhere that you also do some work with intercultural relations. And I'm wondering, you know, is it just because things in the ancient world did sort of, like most things, they had to sort of interact with each other at some point, And then because this interaction was, you know, different people from different places having to interact, was this interest sort of inspired by things more contemporary just because we're so interconnected today? Was it a mixture of both? Where did that kind of play in? Again, going back to Herodotus, I I was just sort of interested in how these two cultures were much more closely entwined than I realized before I started studying it. So Greece and Persia, I mean. And growing up, again, famous stuff. People know, like basically everybody knows a little something about Greece and Rome from their elementary school education, even if it's just like a unit for like a week or something. And I always had this idea that, you know, there were Greeks and then there were Romans uh, and then there was the Middle Ages and now there's now. And I went and I studied abroad in Greece and I found out that, in fact, there are still Greeks today and they they tend to view that sequence of cultures a little differently than we do on this side of the ocean. In that project I just told you about where I started working on the histories of Arian, you know, this is a Roman era person who wrote in Greek and valued his Greek identity quite a lot, uh, as many Greek intellectuals at that time did, but also was a fully engaged member of the Roman world. And what he was writing about was clashes of cultures. So Macedonians not perfectly fitting into the world of the Greeks, fighting wars against Persians who turn out to have a pretty complicated uh, multicultural empire themselves. And the more of that kind of stuff I started to study, the more I realized that that really is where my, my primary interest lies. That's awesome. And with that, I saw you are also interested in like Roman Egypt and sort of the Hellenistic period there. Now, I'm a little curious just because I feel like I I tend to hear this from many classes, which is the gateway drug, so to speak, into studying the ancient world. It's either Greece or Egypt or Japan or something really cool. Did you ever hit a phase where you were like, oh, I'm super into ancient Egypt and I wish I could be an Egyptologist, but because you didn't choose to go into Egyptology, were you kind of looking for ways to still do something with Egypt? Or did that develop later as you were getting more into just the natural sort of cross-cultural interactions and then, hey, they're there? 
<laughs> well, I mean, Egypt is cool. And I, like almost anybody, I think, have been fascinated with pyramids and stuff like that. Uh, one thing I didn't mention before from my youth, I, I said I had some interest in maybe reading the New Testament, but, you know, I had a religious upbringing, and that includes also the Old Testament. So all these stories of Egypt were somewhere in the back of my mind as well. And uh, once I got to graduate school, and my first stop in graduate school was the University of Michigan, where there's like a huge collection of papyrus. So everybody who passes through Michigan ends up doing something with papyrology at some point. And I did. And I thought that it was very interesting that you could look at people's grocery lists and stuff from antiquity. And I had later in graduate school, I ended up doing a project where I was editing some kids' application to the gymnasium. Learning about the contexts of documents like that made me realize that, you know, Egypt was a really complicated place in the Roman period, and there's a ton of evidence for it that doesn't exist from any other part of the ancient world, uh, the ancient Mediterranean world anyway. So that's where that interest came from, and it kind of allowed me to pick up on some of those early childhood memories of uh, this seems like an interesting place to, you know, dip my toes in once in a while. Oh, that's really cool. I didn't know anything really about the Michigan program, but it was definitely a school that I had been considering applying to for my undergrad, and it looked pretty cool, but oh, I didn't know that I uh, might have been able to do something with papyrology. Oh, yeah. I, for me, it was sixth grade that I really got into the ancient world because I had a great history teacher who did a really interactive uh, unit on Egypt, and for a while there, I definitely thought I was going to be an Egyptologist, and then when I didn't do that. I had to settle for being sort of a an armchair literary Egyptologist of sorts. Uh, I mean, to varying degrees of success. Egyptology is a a tough field to get into, but um, it's definitely an interesting one, and uh, that's an interest you and I seem to share. Yeah, I mean, but you know, I think the nice part about classics is because it's so interdisciplinary. It is kind of nice that you never really have to let anything go. If you work hard enough, you could definitely find some connection to Egypt. And so that's what I like about classics. There's there's definitely always a way that you can cram Egypt in there if you really want to. Sure, that, that actually is not all that hard. I mean, everything overlaps, right? Um, and uh, you're right, if, you, if you're interested in Egypt and you end up being a classicist instead of an Egyptologist, there's plenty of stuff you can do with Egypt. Exactly. Now, I am curious because I hear you're working on a second book, but it is on a Macedonian king who I had literally never heard of in my entire life. It sounds fascinating. So I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about who this Philip, I think it was, right? One of the Philips yeah. <laughs> was. So yeah, if you could just tell us a little bit about him and, and you know why he's really interesting to study. I've heard his name like once and I had to do a quick Google search. I'm embarrassed to admit. Oh, don't be embarrassed. You are not alone. I mean, lots and lots of people when I tell them about this project are like, oh, wow, I didn't even know who that person was or I, that they existed. Uh, so we're talking about Philip III of Macedon. And he was he became Philip after he became king, but he was born uh, Eridaeus. And Eridaeus was Alexander the Great's brother. And like I said, when I tell people about this, I, I frequently get, oh, I didn't even know he had a brother. But uh, he did, and his brother was his immediate successor and lived for a further six years, ruling as king of Macedon uh, until he was killed. And for part of those years, for most of those years, he ruled jointly with Alexander's son, Alexander IV, who was born after Alexander died. Uh, and because Alexander was the fourth was a, an infant, he needed a regent, and Eridaeus known on the throne as Philip III, also had a regent because he seems to have had some sort of intellectual disability. And our ancient sources are really not clear at all on the nature and extent and number of his disabilities. He did have someone appointed to help him rule. And for that reason, most histories of this period presume that he didn't make any decisions, that one of these generals uh, was calling the shots and he was kind of a figurehead. But like I said, the sources don't give us a clear picture of what his range of abilities may have been. And they also don't give us a clear picture of the relationship between Eridaeus and his various helpers. So whereas the, the standard line is to you know, treat him like he almost didn't exist, I, I, I'm not necessarily saying that that's 
wrong, but I, I'm entertaining briefly that he may have been a, a little bit more active on the throne than we typically think. And I'm trying to put together a sort of a critical biography of his life, although not a ton of information survives about his childhood, for example. We do know some things about how children were raised in the Macedonian court, and we do know some things about how pairs of brothers related to one another, for example. Uh, and, you know, through those means, I'm, I'm trying to take a renewed look at his reign as one that might have, because of the unique circumstances immediately after Alexander's semi-unexpected death, uh, so far from home in Babylon, uh, political situation had changed quite a lot and would continue to change. Uh, this may be actually quite a pivotal moment in the history of the Mediterranean world in which Aridaeus played a bigger role than we usually presume that he did. So I'm just trying to look at that again. And that's what this second book is about. I mean, it sounds fascinating, but also it would lead one who's not the most familiar with anyone really outside of Philip II or Alexander to think, oh, if he was his brother, you know, why didn't he go with him? Why was he left in Macedon? But at the same time, I guess then that brings up all these other questions of, well, in ancient Greece, you wouldn't really trust another male relative that much because there's always the, the risk that they will sort of usurp you, right? It's not like in Egypt where you can sort of safely leave things in the hands and they go, oh, okay, yes, this is how it goes. We're not going to try to kill this person. So it's it's quite interesting then to hear that he stayed in like Macedonia after the death of Philip II, also with Philip being murdered. And Right. Well, so even there, it's not entirely clear whether he did stay home or whether he was with Alexander the whole time marching through Asia. But it seems that he was there when Alexander died in Babylon. So whether he arrived belatedly or he had just gone on campaign it's it's not entirely clear, but you did bring up something that matters, which is like kind of a lot, which is that Alexander, if he viewed him as a threat, probably would have killed him when he became king in, in some troubled circumstances. So I guess he didn't view him as a threat. But why is that? Is it because he was unable to be a threat or is it because they had a good relationship? I don't know. It's not really possible to say. But as I said, we do know about some other pairs of brothers who collaborated on things and you know they came from aristocratic families where they could have been rivals and just weren't so who's to say it sounds like it could have turned into it could have been right like a sort of game of thronesy type of uh, familial battle because then you have the idea of okay well maybe he wasn't a threat because they had a good relationship or it could be that he just wasn't threatening enough to were Alexander himself. But as we know from history, a lot of women, and we know that Alexander's mother, Olympias, kind of had her fingers in a lot of things looking out for her her baby boy. Interesting then to think, like, because even if Alexander didn't really consider his brother a threat, couldn't we have assumed that maybe his mother would see any type of brother be a challenger? Yeah, I wonder why Olympias maybe didn't have her hand on that she may have uh she there are stories about her too and uh, she uh, had something to do with herodias's death in the end she was still around and was looking after her grandson and there is one story which i don't personally believe but there is one story that uh she poisoned herodias as a child and that is what created his intellectual disability but that fits, to me, that fits a little bit too neatly into that trope of women from the edges of the Greek world being really good at magical things and uh, scheming and all of that. I mean, it's, it's a little bit too perfect uh, and too easy to explain away in that sense. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think you're right, is that, that she was interested in promoting the case of her son and, the, you know, Herodias was not her son. He had a different mother. So she certainly did want Alexander to be the preferred heir of Philip. And that is, in fact, what turned out to be the case. So there you have it. Huh. You know, they missed a great opportunity in that 2004 Alexander movie. That movie was its own special kind of interesting anyway. But, you know, if they really wanted to make it Game of Thronesy, they could have added in 
you know, the brother, dun, dun, dun. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Plenty of missed opportunities there. You're right. Uh, I, I like a lot of things about that movie and I, I you know, kind of roll my eyes at some things as well. And uh, they didn't really do a, a, as good a job with Alexander's childhood as I think they could have. Sometimes I wonder if it's just because the scale was so big and he just like didn't have time because obviously Alexander is very historic figure. He has a lot, just every stage of his life is complicated, but also trying to fit it into like a three hour film is hard. And so this is definitely someone who would benefit from his own like television series spanning like six seasons or something. Mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting because we, we have a lot of different reception materials on different periods of Greek history. We have so many Homer adaptations. It's insane, like oversaturated the market. Why do you think we don't have as many adaptations? Why don't we cover more of the Macedonians outside of just Alexander? I mean, we don't even really have things on Philip, but they're super interesting. Yeah, well, Alexander and Cleopatra, right? Those are the, the bookends, and they do get some treatment. I mean, I think it's kind of, that's really more of a film industry question. It's uh, things that are already well-known sell, which is why we have 40,000 Superman movies uh, and, uh, you know, no new stories. But, uh, you know, to to gamble on, you know, let's say we're going to make a a movie about Antiochus III, that's going to require some educating of the public to get them interested in the first place. Whereas everybody's heard of Alexander the Great. So we can have another Alexander the Great movie every 15, 20 years or whatever. And uh, it's probably going to sell. Everybody's heard of Cleopatra. So we're going to have new Cleopatra stuff from time to time. So I think it's that extra step of having to explain why this is cool and interesting that maybe is preventing people from taking it, taking the risk on creating a, a show or a movie like that. I don't know. What do you think? Yes, the onus is sort of on the TV film industry. But at the same time, I wonder, are we as a field making it deliberately hard for them to do it? Because I feel like it is, it's going to have to be a joint effort because yes, like they don't want to do it because they don't see it as, you know, the materials are not easy to access. They don't have anyone who could, they could just sit down and talk to about it because I feel like when when we've seen people take risks, they make plenty of films and stuff that are, I guess, historically based where they just make up people that weren't necessarily real, but they make it cool and interesting. So I feel like, okay, we don't know the names, but if you get a good story out of it and then if you were maybe able to consult more people or have historians more on board, like it would make it not seem so hard to do it because I think they just sit back and say, well, I don't want to do that because it's hard. I feel like we could have more, but that's just me. To any Hollywood producers listening, I am available for consultation. So, yeah, I mean, stuff, stuff like your podcast, I think, can help with that. You're spotlighting all sorts of different types of scholarship and, uh, you know, facing the public and telling people what's cool and interesting and new and in scholarship uh, could potentially move the needle a little bit. I hope so. Well, and I hope that they do make some sort of series on the Macedonians because, yes, I think that we could have Game of Thrones potential and to introduce new people to new figures of history because there's so many untold stories out there that deserve to be told. I've seen far too many bad Homer takeoffs and I'm really, really, really sick and tired of seeing bad Homer takeoffs. But, um, you know, and that's just one medium, right? We have books and plays and video games even that are out here trying to enter the market and and make it easier to study and learn about these things. But also from a very contemporary perspective, it's been interesting to observe that a lot of people sort of separate ancient history as kind of like an alien thing to study because it's so long ago and it doesn't really connect to today. But having seen you, the fact that you're working on something that people aren't very clued into, but then you're able to take that and relate that into the context of something very contemporary, an issue like Greek nationalism today, you know, I'm curious, you know, how do you strike that balance? How do you find that way where you can connect your work to something very contemporary that I think a lot of people today could understand, even if they're not Greek, they still understand nationalism, you understand connection to one's country. So yeah, how do you how do you strike that balance? Sure. Well, I mean, uh, history plays a pretty 
important role in basically every nationalist movement. So right, right here at home in the U.S., you can see the way people talk about American history. For me, uh, with the Greek nationalism, this is basically a factor of having spent some time in Greece. I've been there uh, as a student a couple of times, and I've been there to do research a couple of times. And just being present there, you see a little bit of dem like political demonstrations, you see political sloganeering, you hear people talking. And I'm somewhat aware of the role of ancient Macedonian history in the cross-border conflict between Greece and uh, North Macedonia. And so you know, talking to people about that made pretty clear to me how inflexible someone's view of history can be when it's convenient for them and how flexible the same person's view of history can be when it's convenient for them. And uh, it, it is fundamentally a storytelling problem. Uh, and so one that I have felt that I personally can understand a little bit better because of my research uh, and thinking through those problems in a Greek context where I don't really have a stake because I don't live there and I don't have family there or anything. I just have friends that I've made through my career. It's helped me see a little bit better what's going on here at home. And the abstraction of that research is really where the value comes for me. But seeing it all play out in the modern world in much the same way as it played out in the ancient world, I mean, that's how I have become informed uh, is in my study of one thing leads me to look at something else in a different way. In, in terms of striking a balance, I try to take a very light touch with my commentary on modern materials because, you know, it's a completely different field of history. Uh, I can recognize some patterns and I can recognize some strategies, rhetorical strategies, but, you know, I'm not going to pretend to be an expert on 20th and 21st century Greek history because I'm just not. Yeah, no, it's definitely hard. I have dipped my toes, so to speak, in both worlds. I got my undergrad in classics and I did, you know, I really enjoyed the historical aspect the most. By the time I got to grad school, I switched into modern political science, focusing on Greece and sort of the Balkan region. So I was actually living in Greece last year, doing my master's, and I really, for the first time, got to sit down and talk to people about the North Macedonia issue. You know, I really didn't understand the, you know, issues like using the, the star, the Macedonian star. I was like, it's right. just a star. What's the big deal? And then, oh, okay, it's a huge deal. Just like, you know, I was clued into more about the battles between was Alexander a Slavic hero or a Greek hero, which I think if you ask the majority of people who are not either culturally living in one of these places or who don't study this issue, you'd say, why is this even a topic of debate, like Alexander, we think of him, he's Greek, he did this, that, and the other thing. And I had a conversation the other day with a friend who had just vacationed to North Macedonia for the first time and said, wow, it was really interesting to go there because the airport and the whole city have all these statues of Alexander and claim that he's a Slavic hero and they had simply no idea. And I said, well, you, you got to look at history, you got to look at borders and boundaries and... Mm -hmm all these things that we don't really think about, but it's it's got to be tough. So I can only imagine what it would be like studying the ancient Macedonians, knowing that, yeah, this does trickle down and over because modern borders were not a thing. So right. I've got to imagine that makes it harder in a way to deal with. It does. And then every, every new period of history you pile on adds another layer of interpretation that has to be accounted for. And uh, much of what's going on between Greece and North Macedonia now. I mean, it does seem to outsiders like a pointless thing to argue about. But the more you learn about the history of those two countries, the more you realize that, you know, their national autonomy is not a given there. Quite recent history, both countries have had uh, pretty serious threats uh, to their national security for that reason, this sort of uh, trying to establish a right to exist through appeals to history is, I mean, I can see why people are doing it. Although I, you know, might take issue with the interpretations of history that are being deployed at any given moment, it does make it seem like it's not silly. It's a totally serious thing. Yeah, no, I would totally agree. I mean, it's, yeah, you know, it's something you don't think about. And then, I don't know, it, there, there's something special, I would say, 
about learning about these issues when you are there, right? And you're kind of in this all-encompassing environment where there's there's not really a possibility of being impartial, right. shall we say? I don't know. It's interesting because there's definitely things about being in Greece that make you stop and think. And then if you are you happen to be a scholar of the ancient world and you kind of go, oh, wait, 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 but maybe I can go and analyze this because I studied the ancient iterations. And I don't know, does this happen to you where when you're like in Greece and then you think maybe your your background, your expertise will help you figure out an issue and then you realize that it's actually not helpful at all? Yeah, I mean... If it's helpful, it is often helpful in, in telling me what I'm ignorant about. You know, like I can recognize what this statue represents, for example, but I have no idea why somebody decided to put it here. And maybe I could go off and research that, but that is something I just don't know. Becoming an expert in one thing is uh, to a large degree an, an exercise in finding out how much stuff you don't know. For sure. And I don't know, do you, do you find that like, people sometimes get surprised when you know you get to say oh well I have my degree in this and I'm an expert in in this and then when they when people tend to ask general questions that they imagine that you would know the answer to and like most cases when when we're in Greece and we say I don't know I'm I'm not I don't I don't know you know does this happen a lot to you do you Oh, yeah. I mean, I was just talking about with this with someone the other day, uh, but both she and I are like not super hardcore myth nerds. So, you know, people expect me to know all the Greek myths and stuff, because, again, that's one of those things that people outside the field, they know about, you know, people know the stories, the names of the constellations and stuff. And, you know, it's 50-50 chance whether I might know the the story of some myth where it comes from. But I frequently just have no idea. And people are, are like, but you're a classics professor. You're supposed to know stuff like this. And I just kind of shrug and say, you know, classics professor covers quite a lot of material. And I don't know it all. Don't ask me stuff about silver Latin poetry either. Like, I, I'm just not going to have a good answer for you. That's true. That's true. It's very funny how the higher you get, it seems that the more you find yourself saying, that's not my area, not my field. I don't right. know. I don't know. Right. Which is kind of counter to, but if you go to school and you learn more, then you should know more. It's like, no, I'm getting narrower and narrower. We, we can't all be generalists, I suppose. That's, it's too much history. Right. And, you know, we know, the, we know the tools of the trade. If we need to find out that stuff, I can go and find it pretty efficiently. Uh, most, I spend most of my time thinking about one kind of classics. So that means all the other kinds of classics that I spend less time thinking about and just have a little less to say about it. Obviously, teaching at a at a large state university like University of Illinois, biggest state school in our state, because these programs have to also like cater toward, you know, you have to have the big gen ed classes, right, that are like 400 students. And it's a bit harder. I mean, I went to University of Missouri. So we have the same problem, big right. state school. So you have Similar to have the state. big classes. Exactly. So you have to have the big classes that will just sort of be the gen ed for people. And it, so it is harder to carve out specialized smaller classes for upperclassmen, because then you just have the numbers problem of how many people are realistically going to you know, either major in classics or stick with it. You know, how does that work out? Are you able to really teach the classes you want to teach? Or just be, is it a numbers problem where at a big university, you do have to kind of go a little further outside of the stuff you really want to do just because you there has to be coverage? Well, it depends, I think, whether a large university has a large classics department. And ours kind of does. I, I, we have 10 permanent faculty members and a few uh, people on shorter term contracts, which I think probably puts us on the larger end of classics departments in the country. And for that reason, I mean, there are classes I teach at the undergraduate kind of intro level that are either, you know, every once in a while I teach an intro to Greek Civ, and that's, I describe that as like a sampler platter of Greek culture. But uh I also teach things that are interests of mine, but are maybe more marketable than my real core interests, which is actually kind of a, a nice thing. So for example, I recently developed a course on sports and antiquity, uh, and I'm like a pretty big sports fan. I like sports a lot, um, but I wouldn't have previously considered myself an expert in ancient sports, but in doing the research 
for that class, I've actually had a lot of fun learning about ancient sporting events and ancient sporting competitions and methods and stuff like that. And uh, that's a class where uh, almost everybody who walks in the door has no intention of being a classics major. They're usually engineers and stuff who who need a, a humanities credit, but they're also sports fans. So there's that sort of natural camaraderie in the class. And that's one where I'm constantly drawing comparisons between ancient and modern cultures, sports culture translates pretty well and people's personal experiences of youth sports for example or being at a big state school like this with a division one athletic program it's just all around them all the time so it's one of these ways where i can show people how studying one topic in one context helps you immediately see the same topic at home in a different light so i kind of like that aspect of the way we're set up here and then in terms of teaching my own research, well, we have a graduate program and those souls get my sort of less filtered interests. <laughs> and I don't know, maybe that's a good thing for them. Maybe it's not, but uh, that's, that's where I really kind of let loose what it truly excites me about scholarship. Uh, so with the undergraduate classes, it's more like classics is fun and this is the my take on the fun parts of classics and the, the the graduate students it's more like classics is fun let me tell you about this weird thing i learned oh i love it i love it and that's a great description for the differences between whether you go on and do graduate work because you're serious about becoming a classicist or i want to take some fun courses but i'm ready to move on that's a it's a great way to sort of distinguish what, what it's like and that's a big department i had no idea that you by classics department down in urbana champaign was so big yeah i think our, our department at mizzou was not quite that big yeah which is also pretty big i mean when i was an undergraduate i think there were three professors or something which i think yeah closer to the norm and then there's lots of big state schools that have you know a foreign language department where one person teaches latin or something and that that person would i presume uh, be much more often going outside their area of interest than i have to do that's true yeah no i mean this is just further illustrating the problem though that humanities and classics especially you know are, are facing i have several young younger friends who are just finishing PhDs and trying to find their way into departments. And it's pretty sad that I have to hear, you know, a friend of mine just went into a department of like French, Italian, and vaguely classical studies. And I was like, wow, you don't get your own department. You're just shoved in as an afterthought. How sad. But I mean, yay, you, you got a job. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and there can be good things and bad things about that. I mean, it's, it's good to have more people around you who have the the shared expertise, the shared interests and stuff. But if you are working a little bit outside of your comfort zone, say with people who teach other languages besides Latin and ancient Greek, uh, you know, you can learn from them too. Uh, and that's a, a lively environment in another way. But I, I mean, ultimately, I think we'd all be better off if classics departments and humanities programs across the board were just better funded and taken a little more seriously all over the country. So I, I certainly take that point. Yeah, but I'm so happy to hear that you're teaching a, a ancient sports class. I remember it became a hot topic of debate in our department at Mizzou, whether it was better to have, you know, um, sort of established classes that maybe you couldn't be taught every year so maybe they'd have to be the classes you'd teach every two or three years and some classes came around every once every four years so if you caught it then you should take it because it won't be there for a while versus the shorter topics classes that professors had the ability to basically say okay I'll teach a mid-range topics class and then I'll like it might not ever get taught again but I'll teach it one time and, and it's fun and so I I wonder you know does U of I kind of do that where you'll have a topics course that maybe they'll let, you know, a professor who's either established in the department or a visiting professor or some someone teach that it may never be taught again, but you can, you have the freedom to create like a really fun one-time class that would hopefully get people interested in. Yeah, yeah. Well, we do have a, a couple of topics courses where, I mean, that's a good place where if we've got, for example, a visiting faculty member, they could teach whatever they want under that rubric. Or if somebody wants to try something new, let, let's say I wanted to do, 
do a course on uh, dining in antiquity or something like we don't have that course on the book. So we would use the topics course. And if it goes well, maybe I'll propose it to add it to the catalog. Um, so yeah, we do have a, a sort of rotation like that. And periodically, it's good to refresh the catalog a little bit. Once you've got a course going in a way where you don't have to prepare as much as you did the first couple of times, it's nice to like ride that for a little while to just take some of the pressure off. Uh, but after a while, you know, that gets stale even for the instructor. So uh, you want to try something new. And that's where those topics courses can really help out because your idea might not work as well as you thought. And then, you know, you haven't put the effort into proposing a new course to the curriculum board and all of that stuff. It's a, it's a good place to do some experimenting. And once in a while, you know, students will come along and they've taken like everything that we normally offer. And then they're looking for something interesting and new. And that's where those, uh, those little topics courses come into play. Yeah, I, I'm just, I'm always a bit curious about those, because I know that they, they are a bit more work than the established courses, because obviously, if you're teaching new material, no one's really had the chance mm -hmm. to do it. So it is very much experimentation 101. But I, I wonder, you know, do you think that if we were able to find a way to offer more, just a good selection that change every year, you know, would that help get more people into the field? Because maybe every year you have two or three different topics, courses. You know, it's, it's hard to say. I, I think it really depends on what you end up offering because some things sell really well no matter what, like sports is popular everywhere. I'm far from the only person teaching this part, sports and antiquity course, and they're all popular. We actually messed up the schedule and we accidentally scheduled it across two blocks of courses and it's still filled up. So it, it was clear that there's interest enough out there to fill that course. Whereas other, I, you know, I've offered other courses that I thought were going to really speak to the moment and there's like nobody signed up. So to some degree, I think it, trying to, capture the magic of marketing there's value in it but also i think you really got to know what you're doing and i'm not i'm not really sure that i've done enough research on our student population to to know what what we really need but maybe doing that kind of research would itself be worth the time because you know those courses that fill the most are the ones that like lead to obvious jobs or that um, just seem to catch people's interest. It's the catching people's interest part that's that's the challenge. And that's not just classics. I mean, that's just, you know, every, every department has these courses that always fill up right away. And then other courses that, you know, fill up halfway. And then some years they're a little more, some years they're a little less. And I think one of the big challenges is that student generations are so short, you know, four years and they're gone, that trying to stay on top of it is a real challenge. Yeah, I know it's it's really sad, but yeah, I guess with this system, you got to get them in and out, and you can't just take classes forever and learn forever. I mean, you could try, but yeah, you know, it gets expensive quick. So, so we have covered a lot of the Macedonians, which are totally interesting within the bubble of let's study the Macedonians. But I'm curious. So you've talked about being able to create a sports class and some other classes. Obviously, your your interests go wide and deep, both within and outside of your actual research areas. So if there were to be some kind of fun reception-y thing done with any ancient material or people, per one person, for the sake of the question, let's just take out anyone we've we've already mentioned. But, you know, if, if there could be a cool book or play or TV show, video game, something done, what, let's say, what century maybe, what ancient century or ancient figure would you like to see get some more airtime because we haven't done them yet? Oh my gosh. Okay, I think it would be kind of interesting to do something with like the really far edges of the Greek world, like the Greco-Bactrian kingdom or something like that. This is one of these places where like the archaeology is real scarce, but what there is is super interesting and not very well known at all. And it touches so many of the things that we've talked about here today about uh, cultures both clashing and also melding and sort of overlapping. And it, it brings together a lot of interesting issues that are taking place in a geographical location that is significant to the modern age. Uh, so I'd say as long as somebody else is doing the work, 
that would be my top choice. Good answer. Good answer. Because that I, I feel like would be a lot of back end research, but it would be really fun. Because as uh, again, I think we did see some of the Bactrians in the Alexander movie. I think maybe. Uh, yes, but not the Greco Bactrians. These were uh, Bactrians when they were still their own coherent entity within the Persian Empire. The Greco Bactrian kingdom would be uh, you know a couple hundred years after that uh and it's sort of a brief moment in time where this this far eastern edge of the persian empire had this slight breakaway kingdom and i don't know is a i used to teach a course on alexander in the hellenistic period i haven't offered it for a while but the greco-bactrians always caught people's attention too because uh, possibly because i was obviously interested in it but also i think the students just didn't expect to find greek stuff that far away that far into the into the hellenistic period so yeah. Oh, well, I want to learn more about them, too, because definitely I think in undergrad, I guess so much of my undergrad was we got through all of the Bronze Age stuff. We got through all I mean, we got through we, we spent so much time on the classical period and then you get like to the end of the semester and then suddenly you have two weeks to do Alexander and everything after and then you just run out of time. And so then they mentioned, oh, and then there was this, this, and this, and this, and we don't have time. And now we're done. Yeah. So, yeah, it's a shame. I wish we had more time to cover the later Hellenistic period because we just, we do kind of skip it and it's it's not fun. There's a lot of history we skip. That's, that's a choice. Uh, you don't have to do your intro Greek survey that way. That, yeah, you're right. That's the standard model. During the last couple of weeks of the class, or this is the Hellenistic period, and what we're really doing is setting up your Roman civ course next semester. I don't teach it that way. <laughs> <laughs> good, good. I'm glad someone doesn't, because it just seems like history expediency. So you, you know about it, and you can say that people have been told about it, but not no detail. So it's a bit unfortunate. I think we do also do such a bad job of showing anything in a cross- cultural context. I mean, I think for the first time ever, a year ago, someone asked me what was happening in Egypt, you know, during the classical period, you know, this would have been what, 25, 6, 7th dynasties or, or something. And I said, well, I don't know. No one bothered to tell me what was happening. Mean, I studied for, you know, four years about classical Greece, and I don't know what's happening in Egypt. And, you know, I had to Google it and say, oh, okay, so it was basically chilling as a, as a Persian satrapy for the, you know, Achaemenids. And mm -hmm. uh, that was quite a shock. So we, we don't really do the interdisciplinary thing very well. We like to we're trying to get better as a, as a field. I think that's on people's minds these days is trying to link up the different kinds of antiquity and show where the points of contact are much more than it used to be. But, you know, time passes slowly. Generations of scholars pass slowly. And uh, we'll just, we have to see what the next decade will bring. We're working toward it. And I'm, I'm glad at least, you know, there's recognition that we need to get a bit better about it. So I'm, I'm optimistic. So there, there are a couple of uh, final questions I used to sort of close out the interview portion uh, of the podcast. And so the, the first question would be, you know, as an undergrad or grad student, you can choose from either one. Did you attend your professor's office hours? Not super regularly as an undergraduate, but when I was a graduate student, uh, especially at the University of Virginia, where I did my PhD, I dropped in a lot, often to talk to people who I wasn't even necessarily working with. So if I was writing a paper for one professor, but another professor's expertise could be useful to me, I'd just pop in and ask them a couple things here and there. Uh, yeah, so I did that more as a graduate student, and I wish I had done it more as an undergraduate, because I think there's a lot of value, both in learning that way and in establishing a personal connection with uh, somebody who wants to help you. Nice. Is there a, any kind of fun memory or conversation or something just that stood out to you about one of these office hour conversations that, yeah, that you really particularly enjoyed? So I remember I caught a professor once I think he must have been in a weird mood. He he gave me a book and he told me all about how, you know, post tenure, he was trying to make himself a whole person again uh, and was like studying music and you know, picking up all these interests that he'd let drop for a really long time. You know, I, as I'm saying this now, it almost sounds a little bit sad, but at the time it was kind of a, 
it, it was like a happy thing because this person had clearly been unhappy and I had no idea and now he was becoming happier again and uh that that kind of stuck with me one of these things about you know don't let your career take over your life uh and it was sort of an influential lesson that this person I don't even think was trying to teach me I think he was just talking through his issues but but uh it had an impact on me and it had an impact on my relationship with my work so that's something that I wouldn't have gotten had I not dropped in on office hours that does sound a bit sad to me now, but I'm very happy that this person was able to discover passions outside of work. So yes, it's it's healthy to, to not let work be the uh, all-consuming thing. And I, I think we often have to remind ourselves, especially for those of us who like to study the uh, the ancient world, because it's so easy these days, I feel like, to not be able to separate you from your your in your in scholarly interests you know i'm meeting more people who kind of assume oh well if you study ancient greece then you must only want to watch movies and tv shows set in ancient greece or read books about ancient greece yeah. uh, and when i said well no i like to do other things you know i get the <gasps> big shocker <laughs> it is good to have other interests for sure Exactly, exactly. Um, and, and also, now that you are a professor, and you've seen it from the other side, but also you do have these nice memories of how important office hours were to you in grad school, if you had to give students like a 30-second elevator pitch for why they should attend office hours, what would you say? Well, there's pragmatic reasons. Like, it's good if your professor knows who you are. But there are also, I think, educational reasons. Like, if you go into your office hours, you might not know what to ask about, but the professor knows how to talk to students and uh, can quickly find out what you need help with just by having a, a little chat with you. And you might uncover something that you need to work on that you had no idea about. So I, I would say go in there, get to know your professor, get to know them as a person and let them get to know you as a person so that they can give you more individualized help with your schooling couldn't agree more that's why i lived in my professor's office hours they couldn't get rid of me which <laughs> sounds like a bit sad now <laughs> millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from noom like evan who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds salads generally for most people are the easy button right for me that wasn't an option i never really was a salad guy that's just not who i am but noom worked for me Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow! Did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com/acast and use code acast for twenty percent off your first purchase. But anyway, so at the end of each podcast, I ask if every guest would read Shelley's Ozymandias poem. And after you've read it, I'd be really interested just to hear your thoughts on what do you think of this poem? And this is a poem that has been cited by a lot of people as being quite deep or influential and interesting. And I'd love to know if you agree. Okay, so I'll read it first and then we'll talk. I met a traveler from an antique land who said two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them on the sand, half sunk a shattered visage lies whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions read, which yet survive stamped on these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal, these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. 
Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. So I have always liked this poem. It's a real like memento mori kind of thing. As somebody who spends pretty much all of his professional time thinking about people who are now dead, that is an important memento. But uh, I also think that it's, uh, you know, it's one of the earlier poems that I remember reading in school that stuck with me. And uh, I have subsequently introduced it to other students. Um, and it seems to stick with almost everyone who reads it. And uh, it's uh, for that reason, definitely worth revisiting from time to time. I don't know how deep the message is. I think it's actually quite straightforward. Uh, powerful people also die and in death we're all the same. So that's a, like, to me, that's a pretty simple message and a straightforward one, but a powerful one and one worth repeating over and over. Yeah, you you really hit the nail right on the head because I also see it as a memento mori. And I love thinking about it because of the time that Shelley wrote it in, in 1818. He was writing it based off of the recently uncovered statue of Ramesses II in Egypt, and it was being prepared to, to come and be in the British Museum and just thinking about, you know, what was happening politically and all that stuff at that time. Political statement from Shelley to, to write this poem. So it would have been a very poignant uh, statement on power. And um, So sometimes I'm like, well, was he talking about it being a good thing that the statue was coming to the British Museum? A bad thing? Like, we don't really know. Yeah, I mean, Shelley, man, he... He really knows how to capture the essence of something in a short 14 lines. I mean, it's it's super impactful for being so short. And that's something that stuck mm -hmm. with me. I was like, how could you do something that sticks with people? But like, it's not like a long thing. So it shows the power of, you know, you don't need to write a treatise and be, you know, deep. You can, you can be deep in 14 lines. It's quite impressive. Maybe we all remember that. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. And so the last question I ask every guest when considering the poem and how, you know, he wrote it in this time and, and it talks about monumentality and these themes of legacy. I'm curious if we consider our contemporary society right now, do we have like a modern equivalent of an Ozymandias, something that we think is so great and amazing and but but will it last realistically? Oh, gosh. I don't know if there's a single image I can point to that works quite as well as uh, what Shelley's doing with Ozymandias here, but we certainly live in a time of great economic inequality and uh, the, you know, the worship of these mega billionaires and their personal space races and all that kind of stuff. It's like, uh, you know, it kind of makes me sit back and think about poems like this. Like, what do you guys think you're doing? Yeah, for, for an image... I don't know. I don't. I, um, not not a good one comes to mind. Although maybe what's happening to Twitter right now might be seen as emblematic. And uh, that new logo might be our Ozymandias with the barren wasteland stretching around it as people leave. <laughs> so there you go. There's your answer. There we go. That's a good one. And yeah, it's it's so disappointingly sad to think about what's going on with that i mean ooh, billionaires thinking that they can just take anything and make it their personal service mm -hmm. gross. gross yes disgusting yes uh, but most of us aren't those guys since we uh inhabit this world down below them <laughs> i prefer to stick around and talk to the people here like you it's a slightly Perfect. lighter note to end on Yes, that would be perfect. So I kind of lied. There is one last question I'm going to ask you, but that is where can people find you if people want to follow and find your, your research or maybe email you to ask you questions, uh, take a class? Uh, well, I mean, my University of Illinois page uh, is probably the best way to email me is uh, an easy way to get in touch. Um, I do have a Twitter. I don't know. Um, my handle is at Dan Leon Ruiz. Um, and you're welcome to follow me there. I'm not super active online, but I am actually quite friendly. So if you ever have a question or, um, you know, uh, you want help with something, you can just drop me a line at my university email. That's D-L-E-O-N at Illinois.edu. 
Great. Well, we will make sure to link both your department page and we will link your Twitter for anyone who might want to go follow you on it because Classics Twitter is a thing and a very friendly space for the most part uh, for, for the people that I've met on there at least. So, uh, yeah, we will link all that in the in the show notes. And, uh, yeah, I just want to thank you one more time for coming on the show today. It's been uh, such a pleasure. And as always, I wish I had more time with my guest, but you'll have to come back. All right. Thanks for having me. Trireme Transit is now departing ancient office hours. Next stop is Present Ponderings.